But one of my top 25 movies that I've enjoyed in my lifetime is based upon a true story of an unmanned runaway freight train in western Pennsylvania called Unstoppable. Now, the stars of the show are Denzel Washington, who plays Frank Barnes, a career railroad worker, and a young man named Will Coulson, who is played by Chris Pine and is an up-and-coming conductor with two years of on-the-job experience. Now, the backstory tension in the whole movie is between older railway workers who are being forced into early retirement and being replaced by younger, inexperienced workers who are strictly being trained kind of by the book in a classroom setting mostly, but they have yet to encounter the real-life dangers of railroading. One of the classic scenes in the movie is early on when Will reports to work and finds out that he's going to be working with this guy Frank Barnes who he doesn't know for the day and uh, Frank and his peers are in the break room before work starts and one of them comments that I don't like very much working in a daycare center and Will responds back to the, the older gentleman sitting there well I don't like very much working in an old folks home either. Well railroading is dangerous my father actually passed away when I was five years old from a virus that attacked his heart. But before he passed away, he, was, he worked 10 years as a brakeman for the Great Northern Railroad. And he almost lost his life or, or, or got seriously injured one day when he was climbing off a train and probably having to throw a switch or something and the train was moving. And his wedding ring got hooked on one of the ladders he was climbing down. He was hung up by one finger as the train was moving. That was the very last day he wore his wedding ring to work. It sat on the top of his dresser uh, after that. In nearly 400 funerals that I've officiated at, one of those funerals was to a packed congregation here at Mission Covenant for a middle-aged man in our church who was accidentally killed on the job working for the railroad. So it is a dangerous gig. And to replace all the experienced workers in a cost-saving measure with green workforce is a recipe for disaster. Thus, the story of Unstoppable. Well, one of those yard workers, which were called hostlers, are, are in the Fuller Yard in northern Pennsylvania. His name was Dewey, and he was moving a train to get it onto the right track uh, for that to, you know, someone to take that run for that particular day. And he noticed as he was moving the train where it needed to go that the track wasn't aligned correctly. So in, without having the safety uh, brakes engaged, he just throttled it down, jumped off, ran up to throw the switch, and then he was going to run back and jump back in the locomotive, which is a complete violation of safety protocol, but he thought he could pull it off. Well, he, uh, the train itself automatically kicked up uh, more throttle, and it started to take off, and he couldn't catch up to the train to get on it. Thus, you ended up with a runaway train. It wasn't just a coaster. This thing was under full power, and it ended up going, at times, up to 70 miles an hour, unmanned on, the, on a track with other trains coming head-on at it. And the adjective unstoppable means impossible to stop, impossible to prevent, which proves to be the perfect name for this movie because the railroad tried everything they could to stop this. First thing they did is they assigned the two workers that had goofed up to go chase it down uh, and, and jump on board, and that didn't work. Next, they tried to fire at the safety fuel shutoff switches right along the fuel tanks with rubber bullets, and none of the state patrol officers' rubber bullets hit their target. Next, they tried to uh, get a locomotive out in front of it 
and put it in front of it and to try to slow the train down and with a helicopter drop a military uh, a person down onto it so that he could climb in there and throttle it down. Well, that didn't work. He ended up smashing into the, the train. The uh, locomotive ended up being flipped off the side on a, on a, a curve and the conductor himself uh, was killed. Then they tried to derail the train and that failed. Nothing worked. It was unstoppable. And what's worse, it was heading into a sharp uh, uh, curve in Stanton, Pennsylvania, near some fuel storage tanks, plus all the fuel and the toxic chemicals that were on the train. It was going to cost the railroad company hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars. It was going to be a disaster with the loss of life and the environmental destruction in western Pennsylvania that would have been astronomical. This is when Frank Barnes and Will Coulson in this true story jump into action to run the train down in reverse going at speeds of over 60 miles an hour. And and they just had nearly had a head-on collision with this train and uh, runaway train 777. And they even did this under the threat of being fired for even attempting to run this train down. But they took matters into their own hands, hooking up to this train because the experienced railroad worker, Frank Barnes, had noticed when it went whipping by them when they were off on a sidetrack, noticed that the knuckle on the last car was open. And, and in the rearview mirror, he saw that. And so connecting at seven times the normal speed that you would normally make a connection with a train, Will Coulson's foot gets severely injured, but they make it happen. And through a series of tug-of-wars, manually braking as many cars as they could, and experienced timing of operating the manual independent brakes, and a life-threatening move to get the conductor, Will Coulson, to the front of the train to power down the locomotive, Frank Barnes and Will Coulson heroically stop an unstoppable train. And they didn't do it for the company. That's the amazing thing. They did it to save their own family members, some who lived right there in Stanton. They did it to save the lives of their friends and their communities. Unstoppable means impossible to stop, impossible to prevent. Well, when we use another word with the prefix on in it, like unflappable, We mean someone who can keep their cool, someone who keeps their composure when they're under pressure or when circumstances don't fall their way in life. They stay the course. They get the job done regardless of the consequences they're facing. They are unflappable. When we take the same prefix and we add it to the word changing, it means that someone or something is unchangeable. In the Bible, when the Israelites were on the doorstep of the promised land and they were camped along the Jordan River, Balak, the king of Moab, tried to recruit a pagan prophet named Balaam to pronounce a curse upon Israel in hopes that it would lessen the fear among his people and that Israel would also be weakened in their threat to Moab. Well, the long and the short of the story is that Balak's plan fails. And you know the account where God doesn't let Balaam's donkey go down the trail and Balaam ends up whipping the donkey and finally the donkey speaks to him. But in Numbers 23, verse 19, we find out why. It says, God is not human, that he should lie. Not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is unchanging. Once he makes a promise, God is faithful to carry it out. And unlike people, 
God does not, who need to repent, God doesn't need to. And repentance means to change one's mind about a course, about an action, about a behavior, or about truth. God does not need to repent because God does not make mistakes. God is not in error. God is unchanging. Well, today on the third Sunday of Advent, we're looking at the birth of Jesus from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, that was just read for us a few moments ago. And in it, we learn about our, our unshakable, loving God. If something can be shaken, it's shakable. It can be disoriented. It can be thrown off balance. It can be taken off of its mission. It can easily be confused. When this can't happen to our God, because our God is unshakable. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, talking about Jesus, our God here, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we've just learned from Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, our God is unchanging. And, and 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 teaches us that our God is not a God of disorder, or some translations will say of chaos or confusion. And the world is all about chaos. That's what the world's all about. It's all about confusion. It's all about disorder and disruptions. And by all means, getting people to be at odds with one another. That's the world. And, and anytime you see that kind of chaos or disorder out there, no, that's the world. That's the world. That's not God doing that because God's not a God of chaos. God's not a God of disorder. And even creation, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, wants to be liberated from this decaying world, this world of chaos and disorder. And verse 21 says that specifically. Now, Christmas is the story of our unshakable, loving God. There was a scandalous pregnancy of a young woman, an imposed sentence, uh, a census, an untimely journey of over 70 miles on a beast of burden through treacherous mountain trails with a young mother who's nearly full term. Then there's no place for her son at the inn. And, and it's bad enough to be away from home uh, when childbirth is taking place. But imagine, no Hebrew midwife, no mom or grandmother or aunts to hold Mary's hand during delivery, no relatives waiting outside the home anxiously to hear the good news of a crying newborn baby. No, there was the chaos of a stable, dark, damp, cool, with all the familiar stenches of a barn. No warm bed for Jesus to sleep in, and a manger would have to suffice. Talk about chaos. Later, Jesus would even say in Luke chapter 9, verse 58, the foxes have dens to live in, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There's an element an element of sadness in all of that. Jesus' life and ministry here on earth begin in a stable, which led to a cross and eventually to an empty tomb. The simple comforts of domestic life were not on Jesus' schedule as he had a mission to accomplish. Even in his birth, Jesus had to encounter humanity's rejection. But in the midst of chaos, we see God's unshakable love for the world. And you know, even before Jesus arrived, uh, uh, the birth, even before the birth took place, Matthew in his gospel makes sure to point out all the successive generations in Israel that led up to Jesus' birth. And we find this account in one of our favorite type of Bible readings of all, 
genealogies, right? Everybody loves genealogies, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And we tend to go right over the top of those, don't we? We don't even pay attention to genealogies. Theologians love genealogies because they give them so much specific information. And that's what the author wanted to do here. But who needs to know about Tamar? Who needs to know about Rahab or Ruth? Or why talk about David and Solomon and not the real heroes of the birth narrative, Joseph and Mary? Why? Because Matthew's making a point that all the chaos and all the sin of the world could not keep Jesus away. Jesus was be born not because he came from a perfect family. Tamar was abandoned. Ruth was an immigrant. Rahab, a harlot. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a philanderer. He was a womanizer. In Jesus' family tree, which we're saying analogously his family tree here, it was pretty shady. And some kings in his family were godless, bloodthirsty thugs. Yet, in spite of all this, God triumphed because he promised that Jesus would come. And in Matthew 1.16, the last verse of the genealogy here, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. In the original language, Christos, the Christ, the Savior of the world. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. God loved this world, this broken, that's the people of this world, this broken, fallen, messed up, chaotic, this world of disorder and disruption, all of it. God loved this world. This is the love of an unshakable God. And in Psalm 11, verse 3, King David asks a very important question there. When the foundations are being destroyed... What can the righteous do? When all that is good is falling apart around us, what can people do? When there's cultural upheaval, when there are short nights and hard work and high stress and all kinds of disappointments, what should godly people do? How can we handle the mishaps and the losses and the calamities of life, especially around Christmas time? When experts tell us that whatever has happened in our lives around a holiday like Christmas, it gets amplified. Whether it's happened in the past or it's happened to us just recently, it will be amplified. As if there's a megaphone right next to us, you know, announcing this. It's just getting louder and louder and louder in our lives. You saw the duck that Bethany has on her tree. That's something that's louder to her than to anybody else because of an experience tied to a grandparent's passing And those kinds of things get amplified at the holidays. Well, the psalmist has an incredible response to this very question that he raises in Psalm chapter 11, verse 3. What do good people do in times like these? In verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. When everything within you wants to yell or to scream, or to get angry, or to get high, or get drunk, or to give up, or to quit, or whatever, to get out of something. The story of Christmas reminds us that God is on the throne. When everything around us shakes, God is unshaken. God's plans are not derailed, nor is God deterred. God holds it all together, and he will hold it all together for you as well if you'll simply look to him.
this Advent season, take heart because God is still on his throne. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this precious time of the year where we are reminded of Jesus' first coming and why Jesus came. And Lord, it is important for us to, remind, to, be, to be reminded of all the obstacles Jesus had to overcome to even come in the first place. And to know that we live in a crazy, mixed-up world, a world of chaos and disorder, and that's not you, God. You're not a God of that, and you're an unchanging, unshakable God. And it's important for us to remember that in the midst of all this, that you're still on the throne, and you will hold us and take us through and see us through whatever we're experiencing in life, God. And thank you for that reminder this Advent season. We pray that we will look to you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.